This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I'm sure there's something we've all felt. We've said or done something and then thought, oh, it would have been better to have done or said something else. This is how we change the ending, is the title of Vicky Wayfield's new book. Welcome back, Vicky. Thank you for having me. Nate McKee, you've given us a, a character who's honest about himself and where he lives. And we're going to jump straight in to a little bit about him from page 20. In Bearstall, tough is the golden ticket. If you get tough breaks, tough going, tough luck, tough pills to swallow, well, tough shit. You have to accept tough love, talk tough, toughen up, tough it out, be a tough nut to crack. And when the going gets tough, sure, get going, but don't think you can leave. I've decided 16 is a nothing age. Too young to behave like an adult, too old to act like a kid. Doesn't help that my puberty took a time out. My voice hasn't fully broken, my facial hair is fluff, and my bones grew too fast for my skin, so I look like I've spent a month on a medieval torture rack. Oh, and acne. So, that's Nate McKee. He knows he blurts something, regrets it, and then overanalyzes and obsesses about it for the next hundred years. Um, But he also believes in alternative realities. How does he... How does he put these down? Um, he doesn't consider himself a writer, but he has notebooks and he, he writes things down to, in, as a way of offloading, I think, the worries that he carries around. He's a worrier. He thinks about everything too much. And this is his way of not carrying too much stuff around with him. So he, he thinks of the notebooks as a well. He drops the stones in the well and then he doesn't have to carry them around. He's not a hero or heroic enough to no. throw those stones anywhere else, is he? Certainly not for most for much of the book, and and even then, um, he's he's not a true hero in that he's brave or resourceful mm. or anything like that. He's just trying to get by. But he can write things down. He in his can. Notebook. He's a beautiful writer. He's an imaginative oh, human yeah. being. Well, we first met met meet him in the prologue, and he's age twelve, where he's out with his dad and his mates, with his dad's mates, camping in the bush. Now, this may sound like a father son bonding time, but in reality, it was quote one ute, two tents, and three eskies. What did Deck Nate's dad want Nate to do? This is um, an initiation rite or a blooding so to speak, where where Nate's only 11 years old and yet he's expected to handle the gun and shoot a goat. And that's it's difficult for him to do. On one hand, he wants to impress his dad and he wants to be a man, but on the other hand, it goes against everything that, he, that you know, his, is in him. And so this, is, uh, this repeats throughout the book, this moment that if he could have changed and not missed shooting the goat, would he have been a different person? Well, now he's 16 years old and lives in a rather dysfunctional family, would you not say? (laughs) They're pretty dysfunctional. They're also, I think, fairly typical of um, some lower socioeconomic disadvantaged families. Um, There's love and there's fun and there's, you know, there's all kinds of stuff, but there's also loads of dysfunction going on. Yeah, well, Nate's mother left, well, we found out that there was a reason for that. 
And his uh, dad, Deck, has now got, uh, well, Nate's now got a new stepmother. He's only eight years older than he is. That's right. And there's twins now, stepbrothers, twins, Jake and Otis. They were once inseparable, but now Otis is three and he's walking and he's talking and he's starting to act out more like his father towards his twin brother. He's definitely starting to mimic Deck in many of in his mannerisms, his attitude towards women. Um, you know, he's quite critical of his own mum at three years old. Mm. He, will, he will call her stupid. Um, yeah. Things like that. So. And in contrast, there's his young, his twin brother Otis. Otis is uh, has a disability. He was born um, developmentally delayed. He, the family folklore goes that um, Jake has a bump on his chest and Otis has a dent, as if Jake, when they separated as twins, took a piece of Otis with him. Yeah. Um, and but it's it's what Nate sees in Otis's eyes. They have they communicate without speaking because because Otis at this point is um, he's not nonverbal but he can only repeat words for things that he already knows. He's still waiting to reach that level where he can tell us what he wants, um, tell us what's in his mind. And there's one word that he refuses to say. He will not say deck or dad. Yes, oh, that brings out perhaps a little bit more yep. antipathy. Now, Nate, back to Nate. He loves facts and writes about prey animals and predators. He knows prey must group together, but he's only got one friend made through proximity over personality. <laughs> Who's that friend? Uh, this is Connor Merrick. He lives in the, the unit across. They live in a group, uh, share a group of units. Um, so they've been friends for the last six years. Merrick always comes to the window, never to the front door. Um, and they kind of consider each other friends by accident, but there's much more to it, oh. to it than that. It's a very deep and abiding friendship. Now, he also has a very difficult family life, mm. but uh, Nate describes his mate as, he has to control his temper. He is trapped in a body that can't control his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> He does. Um, Merrick gets into situations quite often. He's rather he would rather jump in and swing than duck and miss. And um, and he'll yeah he'll wade into situations that he over which he has no control and drag Nate along with him. Mm. Well, these two aren't the only disturbed teens in the town in the suburb. Uh, where do they all meet? What's their safe place? The safe place is, is youth, which is um, typical of many youth centres, I think, around Australia. I've been to a few and they all they all have the same feel. I think the kids that go here are the ones who don't have a tribe quite often or who whose home life is, is just not safe there. So they need somewhere to go to be able to just do normal things like eat, occasionally shower, yeah. um, you know, fall asleep on a couch without wondering whether it's unsafe, that kind of thing. Uh, Macy, when you said you visited youth areas, did mm. you see somebody like Macy? I think the best youth workers are like Macy in that they come from within that world and they have a underst- deep understanding of it so that the exchange between um, the youth workers and the children is much more honest and equal as opposed to do-gooders mm. coming in and, and trying to make changes without really understanding what these kids are up against. So Macy sort of by her, her look yeah. and not so much her, her authority but by her ability 
She yeah. controls this. So people do feel safe there. She's and a survivor and I think the kids sense that. They understand by just looking at her that she's she's been to war and she's come out the other side of it and therefore they're willing to follow her. Right. Well, sort of Nate comes here to do his homework and uh, write his notes. Uh, he loses some pages of his notebook. What happens then? Which is terrifying for him because the, the things that he writes in his notebook are intensely personal and never meant for anybody else to see or hear. So he's lost um, lost a couple of pages and then a few days later one of his quotes appears graffitied on the wall to um, as, as a way of protesting the possible closure of, of the youth centre. Who does he suspect? Um, he immediately suspects Tash, a young lady who goes to the youth centre who has some rather superior art skills and she, uh, you know, she has made... She doesn't hide the fact that she thinks he should stand up more for what he believes in and, and actually fight for the things that he cares about. She's always more removed and, you know, she's she's scary really and yeah. uh, look apologies to listeners but if you've witnessed a disgruntled teenager the best way to describe Tash as Nate does is she has a fuck the fuck off face that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what she deploys regularly <laughs> graffiti leads to the possibility of the youth closing down and this is a pretty safe place because school really isn't you know sport is the arena for bullying and um Quite often Nate has a blood nose or whatever. But there is Mr Reed. There's Yes, he's the English teacher who I rather deliberately wrote as a stereotype in the beginning of the book and I had a bit of fun with that. I made him out to be almost a Robin Williams caricature. Yes. Um, but I guess the point of that was to flip it later on when he realises that his altruism doesn't really come from a good place he's come from a private school he wants to make changes help these kids and um, but his reasons for doing that are perhaps a little misguided he doesn't really understand the world that they come from Mm -hmm. and he needs to he needs to understand his reasons for being selfless are not quite so selfless after all only then can they have an exchange and a, a way of moving forward he takes Nate and a few others back to this uh, private school that uh, seems to have everything and for a vocational guidance seminar. They so, do. you know, they walk around and you know, there's a doctors and, well, they think, oh, God, you know, how can they ever yep. become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever? So, you know, um, quote from the book too, he talks about the other students who may get into these occupations. They're free to save the world. The rest of us have to find our way out of the jungle first. <laughs> yes. Well, um, Mr. Reed sort of talks to them about choosing the path of least resistance, but it's more difficult to be the resistance. And, you know, he, he also talks about they have to be the ones that fight. It's very much a case of you would like to help these kids to lift themselves up, yeah. but it unless they want to do that you're really up against you know it's a pretty their, their defenses are quite strong well even uh, mr reed has said this subject or this essay the pen is mightier than the sword and nate goes off and thinks about oh yeah you know we've got metal detectors for the um for the, for the swords and stuff and and, and but there's many a, a kid at school that's been stabbed by a biro <laughs> <laughs> yeah i do i did have a little fun with that scene because that, that's actually true. There's the, 
in in moments where you have to grab a quick weapon, then a pen is as good as anything. Oh, dear. Mm. And there's the quote from Walt Whitman that really uh, appears as graffiti under a bridge. Tell us the story of how you chose that one. Or how how did Nate find it? (laughs) Sure. Um, I sound my barbaric yawp over the the rooftops of the world. Um, It's pretty common. I think it comes up a lot in English essays. And I just wanted... I wanted Nate to have a moment where he realised what it doesn't really matter what other people think it means, it only matters what he thinks it means. And so he's seen it in graffiti on the side of the the, under, the concrete underpass and he's thinking about that and, and what does it mean to him. So. Look, we follow, yeah, as Nate's own realisation within himself and mm. he realised that he's really got a poetic soul and we see that in his writing there's so many other things that we don't we're not going to talk about and you know, the witnessing and attack on the violent volunteer the beating brocky tui to his laptop but there's bits that I, I really thought was so funny getting out of a beanbag designed to make you look like a three-legged giraffe stuck in a tar pit <laughs> yep I can see that. And I didn't realise, you know, I've seen ibises always around garbage bins and everything, but I didn't realise they were called bin chickens. You haven't heard that? No. I tell you, I've got to get out and read more, don't I? (laughs) Well, look, I thought this book by Vicky Wakefield, This Is How We Change the Ending, has given us Nate McKee, who's just such a wonderful character. And we wish Nate the best. As, he's, as, as you say, he's not a hero, but his honesty is funny and heartbreaking. And I know this book has been akin to Jasper Jones and where Jasper Jones had superheroes, Nate and Connor have films, dialogue from films. Yeah. They just go on and on. Oh, just loved it. Vicky Wakefield, this is how we change the ending by text publishing. Thank you, Vicky. Thanks so much for having me. And let's put in a word for all the good English teachers out there. <laughs> That's what David did. <laughs> now, hopefully this transition will be a lot smoother. Here is my interview with Mark Smith, Land of Fences. What makes a family a town, a civilization. Well, the third book in Mark Smith's epic, entitled Land of Fences, asks us to ponder some of these questions. So, Mark, welcome back for the third time to 3CR. Thanks very, much. Thanks very much, David. It's great to be here again. Now, we will have to backtrack a little for the listeners' sake, those that haven't read uh, the first two in the series. We're in a post-apocalyptic Australia, we have Sileys, Nolanders and Wilders. What's going on? Sileys <laughs> are basically asylum seekers who have been brought in from detention centres and sold as slaves at public auctions. So you could go to a public auction and buy a slave. And uh, when this virus, which is climate change assisted, um, when this virus wipes out most of the Australian population, for some reason these these people, the Sileys, aren't affected in the same way. Um, and we sort of focus on two girls, two Afghani girls, uh, whose names are Rose and Kaz, and they take the opportunity when this virus occurs to make their run for freedom. We have no-landers? We have no-landers. Now, the no-landers are another group of Sileys. They're conducting a guerrilla war against the, whatever is left there of civilization. But they're also out for their own survival. They're basically. also out for their own survival. And it's, and it's another means of survival and very different from the means adopted by our, our protagonist, Finn. 
And the Wilders? The Wilders are probably, you know, the worst possible, you know, people I could imagine in this situation because they've taken advantage of the breakdown in civilization, the complete lack of, of law and order, and they've taken the law, and I, I say that in inverted commas, into their own hands. But often they're misplaced people that have simply grouped together, uh, again, for survival's sake. But amidst mm. all of this, you have Finn and Kaz down in Angauri. Angauri. So they have lived off the land, survived on their own, uh, by their own devices and uh, ingenuity, a freedom and um, utopia in a, in a way. But then as this book commences, there's a radio broadcast and that represents uh, the potential of civilization. But there's a problem here. There is, and this is the first in the in, in the three books. This is the first mention of any technology whatsoever, and so we get this this idea that that civilization is beginning to rebuild. And what this means for Finn and Kaz are two different things, because Finn is freeborn, and um, he will, while he still has his enemies within this this reestablishing civilization, uh, Kaz will always be a sily. So Kaz will always be a slave, and and it very quickly becomes apparent without giving away too much about about what's going to happen that slavery is still very much in existence and does the restoration of civilization actually mean the restoration of all of these practices that were repugnant in the past yeah and look there's a there's a quote that i use where finn is trying to convince kaz that things may be better now and she basically says this civilization wasn't wasn't fair to begin with even before the virus, it wasn't fair. So what makes you think it'll be fair now? And also then, civilization comes with certain compromises. And this allows you to bring back two characters that were of particular, how shall we put them? Well, they were enemies, mm. basically, Ramage and Tusker. And they've been in the previous books and they've mm. been running the wilders and mm. terrorizing people. But What's their role in this book and how has it come about? Their role is that, uh, you know, the re-establishment of the, the army is basically in control and the army has divided the country up into zones. And, and when they've looked for people who may be able to control those zones, they have opted for those who've been doing it by whatever means previously. And so uh, we, have, we have Tusker and we have Ramage who are basically in control of this zone, but now they have legitimacy. They have the power of the army behind them. And basically they're murderers and rapists yeah. and such like, and they're being then given authority yeah. to continue. Yeah. And if you look at the, the history of the world, <laughs> this is not unprecedented. Well, I mean, you just have to look at the um, regimes that were supported for one reason or another for so-called... Stability. That's exactly right. So yeah. it, it really is a mirror yeah. of what's going on in the in yeah. the wider world in that regard. And that's that's quite deliberate. I'm trying to raise that idea of wherever there is a vacuum left, that vacuum will be filled. And if there's a power vacuum, it'll be filled by s somehow. So, and if it's not Ramage, if it's not Tusker, it'll be someone else using similar means. But does that therefore necessarily mean that uh, mankind, people kind, is uh, inherently evil? Well, not necessarily because 
we have the juxtaposing of two different worldviews, one represented by Tusker and the Wilders uh, and Ramage, and the other represented by our protagonist, Finn, who is only a young man. He's only 16, 17 years of age, but he is trying desperately to hang on to those beliefs about a, a civilised society. But he's only one, he's and only one. he only lives with uh, two or three others, uh, whereas if you have a civilization, um, does it necessarily therefore come with power and uh, conflict? It's, it's about you know, re-establishing in the way that they are. It's, a, it's about how they're going to control the situation. And, and to begin with, and I think this is mirrored in human history, that almost any means will be acceptable to bring control. And once that control and organisation is there, you know, then we start looking at, all right, well, how can we improve this and, and, and make it better and fairer? That would be the ideal. Whether that ever actually happens or not, or whether it just means that, uh, as I said, you know, if, if, a, if a vacuum is created, that vacuum will be filled. And if, it, if one regime is overthrown, as we've seen again in world history again and again, if one regime is overthrown and another one takes its place, it will often mirror the, the, you know, the tactics of the one that came before. But also the civilised societies like Australia think it is acceptable to treat others like asylum seekers, mm. uh, reprehensibly in the name of civilization, And we justify yeah, it. We do. Um, it's something that happens... The way in which that's happened in Australia is, is very interesting because it, wasn't, it didn't happen overnight. It, it's, it's death by a thousand cuts. It begins very, very slowly with one or two decisions and then it, it incrementally you know, it changes the nature of our society so that 20 years after the Tampa people in Australia don't bat an eyelid about the fact that we're, that we're keeping people indefinitely in detention in, off, in offshore um, detention centres. Not only that, we have language to justify it because we're saving them we are. from drowning at sea. We're saving them from drowning at sea and we continue to use that word illegals. And so, in other words, society, civilization, is justifying a reprehensible practice. It is, absolutely. I mean, I keep saying that the way to prevent people from drowning at sea is... Go and pick them up. That's exactly right. Yeah, set up, set up processing centres in Indonesia and in Malaysia yeah. and you won't have them getting onto boats. So it's, yeah, yeah but yeah. amazing what society will do. So in many ways this book sort of prompts some of these ideas to mm. come out. You also tackle the question of murder again. Uh, there's something I want to ask you. So what has happened is that uh, Finn is now with the military leader. Mm -hmm. Ramage has been um, <coughs> up to be um, tried. There's something I want to ask you, he says, returning to his fatherly tone. I know you've had two chances to kill Ramage, but both times you've let him live. Why? If he's a murderer, as you say, why not get rid of him? Now, I take my time to answer, all the while trying to work out where he's got his information. I'm narrowing it down. You know why, I answer finally. He raises his eyebrows. Enlighten me, he says. You're holding him captive now, right? Obviously. He's on his way to Wentworth as we speak. So why don't you execute him? I'm sure you could make it happen. You're the law here. Because he struggles to find the words. Because we're better than that, I say. Now he smiles. So mm. that notion of when murder is acceptable, uh, and it's a question that's come up in the previous books about mm. Uh, the reason for Finn not taking that opportunity. Mm. So you, you broach that 
question of murder quite a lot. I do, and it's it's a really a wider question of violence and the use of violence um, because we've seen, we mentioned the Nolanders earlier. Now, the Nolanders are conducting a guerrilla war and they have... Uh, they have no qualms about using violence uh, against, you know, the outlying settlements. Uh, and against the military. And against the military as well. For their yeah. own survival. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So it's a yeah. me or him. And yeah. as the that quote that I just read out, that extract, the notion of the law, if it's in the law, it's permissible. Mm, that's right. And I, one of the things I, I, I loved about writing that scene was this is – this is a 17-year-old boy reminding, you know, the people in control of this society of where their duty lies. As I said, it's, it's a really enjoyable scene to write, but you've got to be very careful about the way you do it because if this kid comes across as preachy, you know, it's, you might as well forget the whole thing. Um, but he works his way towards it and he's nutting it out in his own head at the same time. But also then you need a receptive adult because Ramage would yeah. never have bothered with logic. No. He would have just taken what he wanted. No, that's right. Yeah. So you need an adult that has that capacity to reflect as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. Um, Are there enough adults <laughs> like that in Parliament, <laughs> I dare ask? Uh, <laughs> now, also then, you have technology being introduced more and more. So the electricity supplies come on, but this then allows for tracking, for surveillance drones. What sort of society are we heading towards? <laughs> what are you suggesting? Probably not that much different to what we live in at the moment. Exactly. It, it, is, it is interesting reintroducing that notion of technology and, and that electricity supplies in, are only sporadic and um, they, they, they have them for a certain amount of time each night when they can fire up the factories and put the slaves to work and um, in the abattoirs and, and places like that. So it is, it's, drones, was, drones was a step further. Drones was, you know, that's bringing in that whole notion of surveillance again, along with the tags in the in the Silas hands. But in contemporary society, we're willingly giving ourselves over yeah. to surveillance. Absolutely, uh, it doesn't have to be taken from us. Yeah, we're handing we're, it to we're them. We're handing it to them. Yeah. Last but not least, then you've got the title land offences. Mm. Um, there is the challenge that Finn has of getting access to a particular fenced community mm. in there. Are you suggesting anything further in that? Well, I wanted to set up this notion of these kids, even with, even with the resolution of this, of this trilogy, they're still not safe. It's still a divided society um, and they are only really in the situation they are. Um, on, on very, they're on very tenuous grounds, basically. Um, but this idea about, about civilizations, and this is the microcosm of a civilization, really fencing themselves in. And there's a question that's asked at one stage, are they trying to keep people in or are they trying Trump. to keep people out? And it's, it's true. It's, it's exactly. And you, you put that into a, into a national context in Australia. We're, we're trying to keep people out. You know, um, we're trying to. This is what we've got, and this is ours, and we want to protect it from whatever forces, whatever threats. Threats again in inverted commas. The only problem is we can't make Mexico pay for it. No. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the attitude, yeah. in other words, yes. is global. Yes, it is. And the other thing you've got there then is the virus that caused this in the first place is mutating. So, is society ever safe? Uh, look, I, I wanted to leave that as an open question in a lot of ways um, because, uh, yes, the virus continues to mutate um, and they can't keep pace with it. So uh, it just makes, that, makes the position for these kids all the more precarious. So if you, listener, want to find out what's going to happen in Australia in the future, if you want to delve into these questions and raise them because they are topical, 
you need to read Mark Smith's book, Land of Fences, and it's a text publishing release. So thank you very much, Mark. That's a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Brings us to the end of another show, Jan. Yes, but well, you were talking to Mark and I was talking to Vicky Wakefield. This and is how both, we changed the ending. And they were both from text, text publications. Oh, Isn't it right. wonderful? You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.